the Proverbs do not address. We've looked at salvation and seeking the Lord and wisdom. And then the writer of the Proverbs gets down to the nitty-gritty of life as well. He deals with immorality. He deals with uh, laziness and work and money and speech and just every area of life. And as we keep in mind as we study, this is a father instructing his son on how to live life. And, and as a heavenly father teaching us as his spiritual children, sons and daughters, how to live life. With that in mind, we come to Proverbs chapter 6. Let's begin there in verse 1. My son, if thou be surety, that means standing in for someone else's debt, that really gets down to the practical nitty-gritty of life, doesn't it? A lot of people will disagree with what the Holy Spirit has recorded here, but I'm sure there are a whole lot of others who have been surety for someone who didn't pay. It's a yes, sir, amen, praise the Lord. If thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, making a deal, signing, co-signing, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. And remember that day, they would do it in a, a verbal way instead of written documents like we have. But even my father used to say his, a handshake was the same as back in his days, the same as signing a contract. In fact, most business was done that way, wasn't it? Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend. Go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways, and be wise, which having no guide, or overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat, or her food, in the summer. And gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. So we've seen here the Proverbs cover all areas of life. In chapter 6 comes to the matter of foolish entanglements and diligent labor. Here a young person had gullibly, because of youthfulness and inexperience, had maybe had not been burned yet by this kind of business dealing, had agreed to co-sign with a friend. Let's go together and buy this jalopy and we'll fix it up and then we'll have a car and we'll share it. You know those are, let's, let's go into business together or, or some other thing. And you, you bring your $500, I'll bring my $500 and we'll co-own it and uh I've always wondered about those situations. When it's wrecked, when the other one wrecks, whose is, is it then? It all of a sudden becomes your responsibility, your car. We could go on. We can imagine. And I'm sure if we were open up to testimonies, you could tell, fill up the hour with, with such situations. But uh, he had gullibly, no doubt, or was warning his son about gullibly co-signing with someone to ensure their debt. Practically speaking, if someone needs a cosigner, they're probably not able to pay it. They're, they're a risk, aren't they? And so uh, he, he's saying you need to take that in consideration. He wasn't financially able to do what he wanted to do, but he did it anyway. Was it a close friend, we might ask? No matter, uh, there's no better way to ruin a friendship than, than cosigning alone and one of them defaulting on it. That, I guarantee you that will end a friendship. And, and, and by co-signing with them. Now, but don't misunderstand me. This is not forbidding uh, taking out a, a loan, no doubt. There are some areas in life where you might have to do that. It is forbidding co-signing with someone else. And I know that people do this every day, and, and, and you may not think anything wrong with it, but he's, he's warning, at least you need to consider 
the warnings that the scripture gives before you do such a thing. Uh, was it a family member who put pressure on him, a father-in-law, or, or, or maybe a, a parent to take to cosign so they could have some kind of control over the, the child or the marriage or whatever? There are all kinds of these kinds of situations. Whoever it was and whatever the circumstances were surrounding it, he was foolish and shouldn't have done it. And the insinuation here is that they were in over their head. We're not talking about, I, I gave a $500, but to teenagers, the $500 a lot. I think my first car cost $500, but that was back in the day. Uh, and, and it was a jalopy then. But these young people, I, I, can, I assume they're young people, but it could be anybody. Uh, the particular co-signing, it wasn't just here's $50 until payday or that kind of thing. It was a, a major thing which they were in over their head, and somebody's going to get burned here. It's just you can see the handwriting on the wall. It's not going to end up in a good way. This gullible person couldn't afford the luxury of guarantee someone else's indebtedness. And the father's trying to point his, to his son. I'm just going to show, tell you a piece of advice that will keep you from a whole lot of heartache. Don't ever sign a loan with, loan with one of your friends. Just don't do it. Just have it as a principle. If you have a friend that comes and says, would you co-sign with me to get this, this motorcycle or whatever, they, don't do it. And it does not mean that you can't be a friend. Just shake them and say, that's, just one, that's a principle of my life. I try to live by the scriptures, and I, I can't do that. Most of the time, at least historically, banks would only lend money to people who had money or the prospects of a timely job or the, the wherewithal to at least make payments back on the debt that they were lo- getting the loan for. This is speaking of a situation where the person doesn't have that. They're wanting money, but they really don't have either the good job or the prospects of repaying the debt. Only in recent years was his debt gone uh, a bit allowed to any and everybody. We can trace it back to the early 60s and 70s when, they, when, when credit cards first came out. There was no such thing as the debt as we know it today. And now it's at a, an alarming rate. The economists and the forecasters keep warning and warning and warning that the debt is so big, and it's so big worldwide. And it's not just individual debt. And uh, na- but national debt, and we know we hear about that every day, don't we? It falls on deaf ears, and they just print out more money and give out more stuff without any uh, knowledge or any expectation that at some point the debts are going to have to be uh, called in. My parents, my father was born in 1919, my mother in 1921, so they lived through the Great Depression. My father's family, in a very real and personal way, his father had a, a debt. It wasn't large that you would, just a few hundred dollars, but it was called in and he couldn't pay it. And uh, he tragically his, ended his life over that. And, you know, that always helps the family out, doesn't it, when someone makes a decision like that? And my father was a young boy, about 15 years old at home, and had to take on his father's responsibility and worked and paid off that debt until he was drafted to World War II. Well, as you can imagine... My parents then had very uh, specific ideas about debt and buying what you could afford and not afford and making things last and, and, and not uh, being exorbitant and, uh, and work. They had very, very firm ideas about work and us working. We all had to work and uh, be, uh, make our way, and they saw to it for that. If a person has to have a cosigner, especially in this day and time when credit is so freely given, then it is a sure sign to decline their request for, for a cosigner. 
if the person given the loan can't or refuses to pay it, the guarantor, the co-signer, is all, it becomes your debt, all of it, not just part of it, but all of it becomes your debt. Solomon summed up the problem in verse 1. By becoming surety, or you're, you're standing in for the debt, I'll, I'll co-sign, I'll be surety for it. Insurance is what he's saying. The gullible person was in danger of being snared. Does everybody that co-signs with someone get taken? No. There are many cases where that doesn't take place. But the probability of it is great. And he, he, he's saying you're in danger of getting in a trap. You're going to be trapped with the debt. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth because you've given your word. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. And so the person had, had just verbally agreed to co-sign, but as I've mentioned in that day and time, that was the same as signing the documents. He had made a promise to the debtor and, and not yet to the creditor. And he says, go. He says, yeah, I'll help you out. I'll sign. Let me get, me, get, me get my money together. The father's saying, go to him and tell him you've made a mistake and get out of it. Be fr- friendly. Be kind. Uh, you need to think long and hard about, not, uh, about mortgaging your own future for, for something that you'll never benefit from. You know, this is, this is only going to be a, a disastrous thing for you. First of all, what does he advise? He said, if you've promised somebody you will co-sign, they're in a sticky situation now, aren't they? He's giving his son advice. First of all, go and deliver yourself. In other words, get out of this agreement. Put your pride up and, and, and away and, and go and say, I have made a mistake. I've thought about it. I've gotten counsel, and I'm not going to go through with this, this co-signing. I, I can't do this. It goes against the scriptural principles in my, my conscience, and I'm not in any position to do so. And even if he was, even if he had some money saved up, that does not, no reason to, to co-sign it and give it over to someone else. The, again, the, the probability of going in the hole is great and losing and not gaining anything by, it's certainly not, it should be looked at as an investment. We usually think of it in a benevolent way of helping someone out, but, but often it doesn't turn out that way. He should think hard and say, I'm, no, I'm not in any position to put my family at risk. And if it is a real friend, We use that word, you know, lightly, don't we? If it is a real friend, a real friend will understand, won't they? They may be disappointed, but if that breaks the friendship, a debt certainly would that the friend couldn't pay. If if you go into someone and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do this right now uh, or ever, uh, if that ends the friendship, then the friendship was based on all the wrong motives. It was based, it was not a, a biblical friendship where iron sharpens iron and one helps another in, in many ways. You might, there might be some other ways to help in this situation other than co-signing with them. Uh, their, their friendship was based on what you can do for me instead of us being mutually uh, together in, this, in the bond of friendship and, and helping one another work. You may go help him cut wood. There may be a hundred other things you could do to help the situation other than signing your name and your money over to them. The man is a risk or he wouldn't need to, be, to bring his friend into the, the indebtedness. Now, that's the first thing. Go and deliver it yourself. Secondly, see how practical the Proverbs are? He's giving him a checklist of how to do his business. Secondly, not only does he deliver himself, he is to humble himself. In verses 3 and 4, do this, my son. Deliver yourself. When you've come to the hand of your friend, go humble yourself. Make sure your friend, let them know that, that your friendship is very valuable to me. I treasure it. I'm praying for you, and I hope that this doesn't mess up things between us. 
And then he, he gives him some instructions. The longer you, he waits, he's telling him to solve this problem, the worse it's going to get. Go now, as soon as possible, and straighten it out. It, it will be hard, harder to undo the damage if you wait longer. Don't delay. Don't put off the debt. Deal, deal with it now. Once the creditor gets the, the paperwork and approves it and it goes through, it's going to be too late. You Guess what? You now own a debt that, that, that you may have to pay off in, in full. Uh, the experience proves that, that money lending agencies are not guided by their hearts, are they? I mean, they're not benevolent agencies. A bank giving out money for whatever good purpose you may be using that money for, it's not because there's a warm and Christian feeling about it in this, the way that you may be looking at it by, by co-signing it. When, the, when, it, when it gets right down to it, they are going to collect on their money one way or the other, no matter if it shuts you down or not. No matter if you reneged on the, the loan or not, you still, if you've co-signed, are responsible for it. No matter what the emergency or whatever it was that went on, the hard, cold facts is, is your name on this piece of paper? Okay, here's your payment coupons. Start sending it in. Or maybe even have to pay it in full. And so they don't change their, their minds about that or their feelings. And we saw in the great housing crisis in, in 2008 where the houses were are uh, closed up and foreclosed. Banks don't say, oh, I know you can't pay, so here, live here free. That doesn't, rarely takes place. Once you've signed and the waiting period is over, it's too late. And so you're pleading and explaining, he's telling his son, will probably fall on deaf ears. Again, Proverbs 16:20 tells us, he that handleth a matter wisely shall find good. And whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. How many friendships have been ruined like this? How many in-law situations have been they've been irreparably damaged because of this kind of thing? And in the scripture, we know it's right and it's practical. Shouldn't we just uh, go by it instead of by our, by our feelings? But that's the thing. Most people get emotionally into a situation and don't think of any other possibilities and just say, here, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Well, he gives an example in verse 5 of the urgency of handling the matter quickly. Proverbs 6, verse 5, Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of a hunter and as a bird from the hand of a fowler or a bird catcher. Both the, 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 the roe and the, the deer, that's another word, the roebuck is the, the name for a deer. Both the deer and the bird rely on speed to escape dan danger. That their, quick, their deafness and their quickness gets them out of the, the, out of the snare. This counsel has a great deal of common sense. Act quickly. Go back. No, you didn't. You cannot do this. Go tell your friend the deal is off. I'm not going to sign. And, and so what, what good is a signature promising to pay if the, uh, if the co-signer doesn't have the resources? You may have a good name and a good credit rating, but you really don't have the resources to pay it off. And, and you don't know what the future holds. Who knows if you'll lose your job, and yet you've co-signed, and there are all kinds of scenarios that could come to pass that you don't, you're, you're really gambling here, aren't you? And so uh, health and, and all, all the rest. It's, it's far better to face reality and say, my heart has over, overwhelmed my mind and my thinking, and so I need to back up here uh, and, and, and not lose everything. It's for the better to save a friendship by honesty and common sense than to, to see that friendship end in bitterness if the, the, the bill is not paid. Everything depends on honesty and speed. We all need wisdom in the matters of finances, don't we? We could all, have, I'm sure, have made some dumb mistakes uh, in the financial department, I'm, I'm sure. 
But uh, it's Benjamin Franklin. I know he was not a spiritual giant, but he said experience is a hard teacher, but fools will have no other. You know, some just continually making the same stupid mistakes, and there's no reason for that. Uh, Again, the world's philosophies live and learn, and the Bible's philosophies learn and then live. Learn these principles and put them into practice. We can get into financial trouble by something we do, like co-signing or for someone else's debt, or we can become poor also by something we don't do. And he moves from co-signing to work and laziness. I told you the Proverbs address every area of life. And uh, this something we we may do, co-signing, which we shouldn't do, and something we don't do, work, which we should do, being lazy and refusing to work. In, in fact, the scripture has them here parallel. One is as bad as the other. Our nation was built on industrious people. Do you know when the, the Puritans, when they financed their coming to America on the Mayflower, on the Mayflower there was a mixed multitude of people. It was a business venture from the ship owner's perspective. And it was a shipping uh, company, and they, these people were, were people of rep, rep, reputation and, and status, but they gave up their, all that they had to finance the, the coming to America. And some of it was on the promise. They'd heard of the great uh, fur industry, beaver pelts, uh, mink and otter. They were going to send back these things to England to, to help pay off their debt. Plus, they, they uh, heard that the, the land was fertile, and they were going to just have abundance of crops and send back maybe tobacco or tea or other things that they thought they could grow uh, to pay off their debt. But but you know the story, don't you? They landed, you think of, of all the places they could land, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Think of what it's like up there right now. They had hoped also to make money by fishing, and the fishing here, the nets, and all the manner of fishing was absolutely the opposite of what they had done in England. They were used to one kind of fishing. It wouldn't work here. And so they had obstacle after obstacle. Uh, but, but with all that being said, in fact, finally, after two or three years, they worked things out. They had, they had their debt paid off. They sent it back on a ship loaded with the goods and all to pay off their debt. It was overtaken by French pirates, and they went back to zero. It took years and years and years to pay off, just the financing their passage to come uh, to America. But within a 100 years, those, the ancestors of those people, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all those colleges were founded. Think of all the, the, the revenue and the commerce and the, 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 their thriftiness and their hard work. Uh, amazing because they live by biblical uh, principles. Well, Solomon in the scriptures as a whole has no use for laziness. Or here, the, this interchangeable word slothfulness. He profitably invested every passing moment of his time. Your life is made up not of money but of moments. Most people think of it as in, in dollar signs. But your life, you have the same amount of moments as Bill Gates does or the, the Queen of England or some wealthy or famous person. There the ground is level. You have so many minutes and seconds uh, in a day. Solomon said don't waste a minute because that's wasting your life. It's wasting time and wasting you know, what, what it stands for. He writes in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, about a time and a place for everything, and, and wisely seeing to, that, that to everything there is a season, a time and to every purpose under the heaven, and realize the seasons, the opportunities. Our church theme this year is the great doors of opportunity. 
We know that these doors will not always be open. Right now, the doors are wide open to send the gospel of John out, for example. We'll just give that example. Uh, or the broadcast the gospel. But what if legislation changed all that? I mean, in a day, we see things daily just going by the wayside. What if, what if clear biblical preaching and teaching like I'm giving today becomes, what if the FCC says we're not having gospel preaching anymore on the airwaves? You see, Glen Iris Baptist Church has a license uh, to do that. What if that license is taken away? We're just permitted uh, to do that. And I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm just saying we have a door that's open. We can broadcast the gospel now. I hate for five years or ten years down the road say, well, if we had just taken an opportunity and really seized that and sent out the gospel in, in, in the various ways. And so uh, we have a window. I have just this day, this period of time that the Lord has allowed me to be here. And I know that my, my time is passing. And I have just this one life. And uh, only what's done for Christ, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ the last. Verse 6 advises us to study the ant. Isn't it amazing? He goes from loaning, co-signing. Go look in your backyard at an ant. Now, to me, as a little boy, I used to get a magnifying glass and look at the ants. And just an amazing thing to watch the ants carry, you know, a seed ten times bigger than they are. Uh, the industry, the lines that they form back and forth. Have you ever observed the ants as they're going from the harvest to bring it back to the nest and, and the, or the, the ant bed? And he tells us, go look at the ant. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. One of the tiniest little creatures on earth is a picture of hard work and industry and saving and frugality. Someone has said that the ant is the busiest creature in the world. You never just see them sitting there, do you? They're always moving. And have you noticed how quickly they can find food? Just go drop a few crumbs out and and come back out in five minutes and a million ants will be there carrying it off in just a hardly any time at all. They come to every picnic, don't they? You don't have to announce we're having a picnic. They will be there, and they'll, they'll be there to get every, every crumb. They're diligent. They're open. They're looking for every opportunity and vigilant in seeking out their food. They seem to be tireless in their labor. They're found everywhere on earth except two places, on the north and south poles. But everywhere else, there are ants. They divide their labors. Early on in the uh, Industrial Revolution, the the people uh, found out about the division of labor, that some were better equipped to do some things than than others. In fact, the modern uh, commerce and capitalism was built on finding out what you're good at and doing it and and everyone having their, their particular task and job. And so the ants, they came here knowing that. They didn't have to discover that. They divide labor. Some clean Some uh, gather, some store food, some are soldiers, others man the nursery. They they guard and protect the the nest. They have storehouses. They have rooms that are are store up for food. And I'll tell you, the ants are not starving this winter. There may be some people starving, but the ants are not. They've got it stacked up, stored up, and they'll be here ready in the spring to start all over again. They're down deep down into the the ant beds doing what they do right now, resting up and, I guess, gathering and, and... and codifying and stacking their stuff, you know, see, taking inventory. I don't know what all they're doing, but I know this, they're industrious, and they'll be back, Johnny on the spot, the first day of spring. Ants can carry loads many times their physical weight. Now, we can't do that. Can you imagine, you know, being able to carry some, uh, uh, an object several times your, your weight? They never seem to be still. The ant colony is built on the twin principles of discipline and work. 
Sounds like an economics class, doesn't it? If the colony is disturbed, like a little boy like me when I was five years old, stepping on an ant bed just to see what would happen, I confess to you, I've done that at times, stick a straw down in it or something like that, they go at it, don't they? It's like a, a tsunami has come through or an earthquake. They, they, they get there, begin to rebuild, restructure, move the food that's been disturbed, the eggs that have been disturbed, and they begin to go back into I mean, they come on full force to correct uh, they, they, they accelerate to a fever pitch to match up to the, the problem at hand. We see in verses 7 and 8 that the ants' world described to us there, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler. Now, we're studying here on Sunday evenings the offices of the church. And the, the, the Lord in his wisdom placed overseers and guides in the church and his people. We're sheep, and we have to be led and guided and taught. But he points out here that the, the ants don't have to have a supervisor to make them clock in and clock out and make sure they're on time and, and all that kind of thing. Provides her meat in the summer or food in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. There are times at the harvest there's much more available and there are longer hours because the food is just hanging on the, the, the you know, the, the grain is there and we need to get out there and get it. I can just see the ants going to it. Ants work without force, the amazing thing having no guide or overseer or ruler. The, the ant colony is a picture of efficiency. I mentioned the Puritans when they first came, they decided they would have just one big communal garden. And everybody, they thought everybody will work in it and we'll, we'll, you know, many hands make light work. But what they found is that some people worked harder than others and some didn't work at all. And so the Governor Bradford decided, well, everyone will be given their own plot to, to manage and whatever you grow you can keep and you can help pay off your debt that we all have a debt here we've got to pay it off and you know what they found that miraculously the efficiency and the productivity became much more than what was needed because they weren't when it was a communal thing everyone expected well brother so-and-so he'll take up my slack i don't feel like doing it today or you know and but when you had to if you didn't plant it or grow it or weed it you weren't going to get anything from it, it put it a whole different perspective on uh, the industry there and so solomon appreciated the ants work ethic the fact that they aren't forced to be productive ants are not slothful that slothful humans should take note of the ant they work without fail winter or summer no matter the weather the ant goes about its duties undeterred by the circumstances the scripture we'll see in the proverbs that the slothful man can give more than seven men can give reason. He gives all kinds of excuses for not being able to do what he needs to do. In verse 8, he tells us here, she provides her food in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. In other words, she seizes the moment, understands the times and the seasons, understands I have a window of time to be productive. There'll come a time when I can't be. All those things that, that we hear about and know about but sometimes forget. They instinctively look ahead and while the time is favorable, they prepare for the hard days to come. What the ants do by blind instinct, the Creator has placed that in them. And it's something that God was so careful that He gave this attention to these little creatures. And what they do by instinct, they uh, uh, people ought to do as a matter of simple common sense. The Bible is telling us: Do we plan ahead? Do we work wisely? Do we take advantage of, of opportunities? Are, are we careful not to waste, even though we live in a rich society? Should we waste just because we can? Our forefathers would have thought that's unthinkable. Uh, 
My wife was cleaning out the pantry the other day, and she said, well, you'll be glad to know if there's ever a shortage on keep ties in Birmingham, Alabama, I'll have enough for everybody in Birmingham. Of course, we came from parents and rearing, as I mentioned, mine through the Great Depression, where, you know, the Walmart sacks and everything, we feel a responsibility over, a stewardship over. Listen, my, my mother was green before they, she knew what green meant, the green movement and all the pressure to recycle and all that. She recycled foil and, and pie plates and, and everything. And, and we say that with a smile, but, you know, wealth, and I say that we're, we're wealthy. The, 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 the lowest among us are wealthy compared to 90% of the world. Does being able to get another one at Walmart real quick or the Dollar Tree, does that justify us wasting of course not. If we think of all of that as money that can either be used in the Lord's work or for our retirement or for, to help others where you wouldn't have to co-sign, you could give gifts to people if you have an excess and help relieve needs as they did in the early church. There's a whole different way of looking at things. And if we looked at our opportunities here as a stewardship, my time, what, what passes through my hands, what I have, uh, we ought to be able to think of it that way. Years ago, I came across one of the most interesting articles. I like reading about people and those who, have, who decide to give large amounts of their money away. Perhaps as a pastor overseeing uh, various agencies, I'm always hopeful that someone will do that. But I remember reading in, in the news, uh, or actually the Sanford uh, magazine that comes out, I think is where I got this, that Ralph Beeson, one of the, if you ever go to Sanford, you'll see his statue there. He's sitting on a bronze statue on a, on a bench there. And he, he uh, the Beeson family, his brother, Dwight and Lucille Beeson gave a, a large amount of money to Sanford. But Ralph was one that did as well. And when he died in 1991, he left the largest charitable gift in Alabama history at that time. Uh, and the largest gift to an educational institution in the nation uh, 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 at that time, I'm sure it's been bypassed then, of uh, $38.8 million. Well, that's a big chunk of change, whatever it is. But at that time, it was the largest gift given to a charitable institution by an individual. And in this article, it says, I'm just going to share with you this. He comes to my mind when I think about the ant and the frugality and, and, and saving. Beeson told his friends, it's the Lord's money. He gave me the gift of making it. I'm not smart enough to make that much money on my own. It's his money, and I'm going to give it back to him. Yet for all of his wealth, the retired former Liberty National Life Insurance Company executive lived a simple life in an unpretentious home that overlooked Sanford University. The stories of his frugality abound. He often refused to run his central air conditioning because it cost a fortune, he said. And he got rid of his overcoat because of being tired of having to pay the tip, the coat room attendance. Beeson complained recently before he died, of course, to a friend that a 50-cent part he needed to repair his refrigerator was no longer manufactured, and he was going to have to get a new refrigerator. And when asked about how old the refrigerator was, he said he bought it in 1946 or 47, but that he wouldn't buy that same brand again because they don't last. <laughs> That's my view of appliances. They, they ought to be built to last. Another friend once bought him a pair of corduroy trousers that, that the multimillionaires seemed to enjoy. And so... The, the friend, because it was so hard to, to buy for, he thought he'd get him another pair since he liked those so much, and he refused them. He gave them back. He said, I've got a pair. I don't need another pair. That was just his, his view of life. 
Materialism had a low priority with Beeson. I value my friends here better than any earthly thing, he told a Sanford gathering in 1988. And his quiet stewardship of vast resources enabled him to follow through on his desire to leave millions of dollars to the causes of Christian higher education and the church. He had a deep sense of stewardship. And so he uh, it goes on to say he made allowed the university to make uh, public his gift to uh, encourage, uh, not to draw attention to himself, but to encourage others to do the same. Well, the Bible, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't run the air conditioning or not have more than one pair of corduroy pants or that kind of thing. I'm just illustrating that because someone was very wealthy did not mean they felt like they could waste. And he had a purpose, didn't he? He wanted to leave as much as he could to the Lord's work when he left this world. Well, the Bible teaches that industry and frugality so that the Lord's work can be enhanced and enlarged. And I wonder how many of God's people think of it that way, that they, they are a steward and, and ought to do what they can to help uh, the, the Lord's work. We can see Solomon with this young man pointing to the ants. He's just told him, don't co-sign. That's an unwise thing to do. He said, look over there at those ants. Look at them. They're going 90 to nothing, back and forth, carrying things too big for them. They're making, as the old saying goes, making hay while the sun shines. Do you see that? Look at that one carrying a load several times his own way. Look at their industry, their drive. You can't find a lazy one in the whole colony. And that's what ought to be said about us as believers. I think every believer in your place of business where you work, they ought to be, you ought to be known as the worker, the one who's there, who can be depended on to do the job excellently and to, to the best of your ability. I think of Daniel and Joseph and those placed in places of responsibility. Our Lord's church ought to be that way, a, a beehive of activity, not just for activity's sake, but to, to get the work done. Everybody having a ministry, holding a door, running a vacuum, teaching a class. There's just a, a myriad of things that, that has to be done uh, in this place and to, to keep everything going and uh, reaching the lost. He calls his son to listen in verses 9 through 11, and he rebukes laziness. The lazy uh, escapes from duty by sleeping, and there's nothing wrong with sleep. We need a, a, a proper amount of rest. Some need more than others, and so this is not a, a standard that everybody has to get up at 4 and go to bed at 11, whatever that is. We're all different, but he's saying that when you're sleeping, uh, which is good and normal, and God has given it to us to, to rebuild us and to resuscitate us and, and make us uh, be healthy, and to, to replenish ourselves, uh, he's saying we should be careful and monitor that as well. That's how a lazy person reasons. I'll just, there's a big job to be done. I'll just take a nap. After all, tomorrow's another day. You know, that, that kind of philosophy. And then the time is wasted. Research shows that, that people fritter away most of their time. And I, I fear that in this day of technology, with so many labor-saving devices... I wonder how much other labor is done by the, the time that's saved, and especially with all the, the social devices that people involve themselves in, how much time is given to that that, that used to be given to reading or other things, gardening, or things that, that might have more to show for it than figuring out what somebody ate yesterday when they went out to eat. The wise person does all that he does on purpose, whether it's taking a nap to refresh himself, or whatever it may be.
But the lazy man's idea is to nap instead of working or to avoid work. But the Holy Spirit, using Solomon, gives us God's perspective on wasting time. How long, he says, are you going to sleep? Our Lord, there's a little card I have on my desk that that, uh, I I forgot that it was there, and I picked it up as I was going through some papers. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ, his response uh, to a crowd one day, he asked a question, which he often did to make a point. And he says, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now think about that. That's our Lord's perspective on those waking hours of productivity, of, of hours that would be given over to, to work and, and that kind of thing. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Of course, a day is uh, divided up into to, to, to night and, and daylight. And he was referring to that time where they worked from sunrise to sunset was the day. And uh, he using that analogy of what should be done. But verse 11 tells us the sad result. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy, ha- and thy want as an armed man. The lazy man can expect to be left without the necessities of life, is what the verse is saying. His rainy day is coming because it's coming for everyone. Uh, his misfortunes are already coming toward him while he uh, rolls away his time on uh, productivity on a bed of idleness. His poverty is coming as one that traveleth, or like a hobo, or just a a highwayman, or a robber. It it will often lead that person to do other things that are wrong to try to get money. And that that word traveler there, there's a whole class of people that are referred to as the travelers. They go from place to place to do odd jobs, and sometimes there's... um, uh, dishonest things associated uh, with them. But that word there has come to, to con- have that connotation. But it's speaking of a person just going from place to place without really any real uh, 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 purpose or job or intention. The picture is, is vivid, just as a tragic as being robbed of your wealth by an armed man. Laziness does the same thing. Laziness is a cruel robber. What is it doing? It's stealing from you or causing you to be left without what you need. It's like being held at gunpoint, except you're holding the gun to yourself and allowing it. The lazy man will be helpless when poverty comes, as helpless as a man looking down the barrel of of an armed robber. What can you do if someone has a gun at your head? You're helpless, aren't you? And there will be nothing he can do but to submit to to the, the gruesome circumstances. What advice the Lord gives us here of co-signing, of working, and doing our best. Now, let me say, there's, everyone has different circumstances. And the scripture is not saying that everyone should be wealthy or that everyone should live on the same level. But we are all to take advantage of our responsibilities, the job that we do have, the resources that we do have, all I'm going to be asked about when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ is what I did with what I had. That's simple, isn't it? I don't have to worry about Mr. Beeson's millions. That never came my way, and I won't have that kind of money when I leave this world. But I will have whatever came through Chris Lamb's hands, and it will be just as important at the judgment seat of Christ as what he did with his. The bottom line is he lived with a purpose, didn't he? And he made whatever he had, he saved and gave uh, to the Lord's work. Well, let's keep these things in mind and ask the Lord to help us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, how clear and true it is. 
and how uh, it speaks to every area of life. And I pray you'd use this, this lesson today to help all of us to consider what we can do for you and for your work. And for our own future and our families, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.